This is MIT Technology Review. Coastal towns in Washington and Oregon have warning systems like this one. This is a test of the Ahab system. If this had been a real emergency, you should follow evacuation routes. Move to higher ground. Inland now. Do not delay. Do not return. States built these alert systems because they know that at some point in the next century or two, the Pacific Northwest will be hit by a giant earthquake and tsunami. It's just one of the ways people up and down the coast have been getting ready for their version of the big one. Here at Technology Review, we want to know whether preparing for one kind of disaster can help communities deal with a very different one, namely a pandemic. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Deep Tech. Seventy to 100 miles off the coast of Washington and Oregon, there's an undersea fault called the Cascadia Subduction Zone. At this fault, the strain building up between tectonic plates gets released periodically in the form of a megathrust earthquake, which in turn unleashes ocean waves that inundate the coast. It happens every few hundred years, and the last great earthquake and tsunami here was in the year 1700. Britta Lochting is a feature writer who grew up in Oregon and now lives in New York. She says she found out recently that her cousins have spent years working to prepare for the big one in their tiny coastal town of Cape Mears, Oregon. In a piece for the May issue of MIT Technology Review, Britta wrote about her trip to Cape Mears, what she learned about how the town's emergency preparedness efforts got started, and why it turned out that all that work was critical to community health and safety once the coronavirus showed up. So can you walk us through the beginnings of this story? Where did your reporting start? Yeah, so I was home for the holidays, December 2018, so two years ago. And my dad just sort of offhandedly mentioned that his cousin, who lives on the coast, and her husband are preparing for this tsunami. <laughs> I like, had no idea what that meant. And yeah, it was also fascinating that I have extended family who was into this, which I didn't know about. So I emailed or called up both of them, and they invited me down to see like what this was all about. And I took my dad along. So we started out from Portland, and it's about a two, two and a half hour drive southwest. You're driving through evergreen forests the entire time, basically. And then I think the first big town we hit is Tillamook, which is sort of a tourist town. It's known for its cheese and ice cream. And Cape Mears is sort of just on the other side of the bay of Tillamook. And you turn onto this very narrow road and you're sort of driving in a C-shape around the bay to get to Cape Mears. And on one side of you is the bay. And then on the other side, you're driving right up against this cliff. Wow. Yeah, and that road was actually really terrifying <laughs> to drive on. So yeah, so you drive around this kind of C-shaped curve, and then you come to Cape Mears, and it's tiny. I think there are like 60 full-time residents there. There's a little bench area you can kind of sit on and 
look out on the beach and then behind our houses. And it's sort of up on this hill too, which is where Pete and Ellen live. It's really exposed. And Pete and Ellen kind of lived, I would say, maybe a little further back from the coastline. There were homes that were definitely more towards the ocean, but everything is right on the coast. If the waves come like from a tsunami or anything, you can see that they're going to hit all these homes. So what were Pete and Ellen doing to prepare for such an event? They had thought about a lot. So they had nailed furniture to the wall, like bookcases, anything that's going to come down, shelves, anything like that. They had months worth of food down in the basement. They had a Berkey water filter, which Pete always likes to reiterate is used by Doctors Without Borders. So it's sort of like the big kahuna of water filters. And they have several grab-and-go bags, which is sort of standard on the Oregon coast. I actually think that there's a hotel that offers them for each guest in the room. So this has sort of become like the hot accessory on the Oregon coast, basically. And they have several of them. And then they had also done some, not just things in the home, but like mentally preparing. So Pete knew, like he had mapped out every situation in which he and Ellen might find themselves in their day-to-day life, if they're fishing or if they're shopping in town, like where they might be when disaster strikes, what their escape route is. So he knew exactly what to do in like any given scenario. And Kate Mears had this whole like neighborhood effort going on of someone knew how to do CPR and there were several nurses and doctors and it was kind of this whole effort that they had going on. So Pete and Ellen told me I should look into this woman named Linda Kozlowski and that they had really taken a cue from this town called Manzanita, which is about 30 miles away. And actually I had sort of started interviewing people at uh, state universities and some other kind of expert people on the ground there. And everyone told me to reach out to Linda and that this was all started by her. So eventually I did. (laughs) Britta interviewed Linda Kozlowski back in March. She learned that 300 out of the 3,000 people who live in the Manzanita area are part of an emergency volunteer corps that's been preparing for disaster for more than a decade using a program called Map Your Neighborhood. To find out more, I called up Linda on Zoom. Okay. Well, my name is Linda Kozlowski. I am retired. I'm on the city council in the city of Manzanita, and each council member takes a responsibility. And my first responsibility, they suggested I do emergency preparedness. And I really had almost no connection with emergency preparedness. And so I, you know, I kind of dabbled with it and thought about it. And uh, we had a police chief, fire chief who was here, who was a, a great friend. And so we would talk about what we could do, but we really never did much of anything really other than talk about it. And in 2007, December of 2007, we had hurricane force winds that wiped out all of our communication. Uh, we couldn't get in or out of the city. We have aging demographics here. So we have a lot of people who are in need of heat and there was no electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and our fire chief, police chief, the, the uh, person I was talking about a few minutes ago, was in our emergency operations center for 36 hours straight with almost no help. 
So after that incident, after we survived that incident, it became very clear that as a coastal community that was easily isolated, we need to figure out how to organize the community to respond. And so that was the beginning of what grew into the organization called the Emergency Volunteer Corps. And so that has grown to the point that we have over 300 volunteers now. We have a community that that understands the issues that we need to face and work together to face them. In 2016, we had a tornado and it just hit the city of Manzanita. And so that was kind of another awakening to the fact that we really needed to work together and that depending on the outside world, it just wasn't going to happen. And our our newest and most critical disaster is this coronavirus. So um, this has been a challenge of a different kind and certainly not one that we expected. I'm sure it's not. I understand one of the things that you did once you joined the city council and inherited responsibility for emergency response and preparedness is you got trained in this system called Map Your Neighborhood. What are the essentials of the program? It's a very structured, simple program. There are like nine steps to the program. And what you do is you get your neighbors, you define what your neighborhood is, you get your neighbors together, uh, you talk about what your what your skill levels are, what kind of equipment you have, what will you do, or what, what are kind of the skills that you'll need in order to be prepared. And at the point at which there is an emergency, you all congregate and meet at this neighborhood gathering site, and you determine what your next steps are. It was a great idea. It worked really well. What happened was there wasn't a lot of focus on preparedness. There was a lot of focus on reaction. So what do you do immediately after an emergency or response? But there wasn't a lot of how do you prepare this group of people for responding to events. Yeah, my next question was going to be about which parts of that Map Your Neighborhood program you feel like were really great to have when the coronavirus came along? Because that's a very different kind of emergency, right, from a tsunami or an earthquake. Absolutely. And I think the relationships were the most important part. I mean, we had worked together. We had planned together. We knew each other. That That's a major part of what makes this work. So what happens is you begin to adapt. Obviously, in the coronavirus, you can't meet with each other. I mean, it just doesn't work. And we are an aging demographics here in uh, Manzanita. So we have a a lot of people that are really susceptible to the virus. So we even feel more strongly about the fact that we don't want to actually physically meet. So we've got text groups that are working with each other. We've got neighbors that go to the store to get people's groceries. We make sure we've touched bases with each of our neighbors, particularly those that are living alone to make sure that they're okay. So so we've trans, we've kind of taken that program and adapted it to coronavirus. And it's all about taking care of your neighbors, knowing your neighbors and taking care of your neighbors. I'm really curious about how you personally, you and your husband personally prepare for emergencies. And I just wondered if you have extra supplies or gear around your house so that you're able to ride out a big storm or an earthquake One of the things that we decided to do is that in order to put all of our gear together, we actually rented a space outside of the inundation zone with all of our emergency preparedness equipment. Now, I do have I do have a go bag here. 
my husband and I both have a go bag. Would it be easy to grab one of your go bags and like just show me what's in it? Sure, I could do that. One of the most important things is a whistle. And the reason a whistle is important is if you get trapped, your voice doesn't carry very far. So a very strong, not just a regular whistle, a really strong whistle is really important. Can I get you to blow on the whistle? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. <laughs> oh my God. That's so loud. Sorry, Supak. <laughs> my husband just came. He thought I was in trouble. <laughs> uh, hand sanitizer is really important. Then I have my 90-day supply of meds, which are really important. My water supply. So those are little packets of There's water. Those are little packets of water. Then I have a knife. I have a Coast Guard SOS bar, and they're energy bars. Okay. Then I have handy wipes, a metallic sleeping bag. Oh, that looks like a fold-up space blanket kind of thing? Yeah, I have a space blanket, and then I have... This is actually a sleeping bag. I'm amazed that it folds up so small. Yeah, it is. I know. It's great. A cloth for washing. Toilet paper. Always good to have. Always good to have. An emergency radio with batteries and a flashlight. I have another space blanket. So I have my mask, a multifunction tool. I have cards so that I can have something to do. I have another whistle and a compass, a multifunction knife to cut food, string, and this is to tie up so that I can make a, a tent, duct tape, gloves, hand warmers, matches, lights, toothbrush, toothpaste, a cloth, cotton swipes, Vaseline, hand cream. I have peanut butter and I have chocolate. And those are the two things that I need to survive. I have utensils, a guidebook, I have emergency blankets, and then I have an emergency tent. And now just so the audience gets it, everything that you've pulled out so far, it all fits inside one backpack. Right, right. That's amazing. I'm sorry to make you pull all that stuff out because now you're going to have to stuff it all I back know. in there. <laughs> That's true. So I just have a few more questions if you're up for a couple more questions, Linda. <laughs> I think there's this popular perception of people who are into prepping and survivalism that they are somehow individualists. They're out to save themselves and save their families and to heck with the rest of the world. But that's the opposite of what you're talking about. Wait, I think, I think the reality is that there are two ways to look at responding. And, and they're, they're, they're both out there. One is that I'm in it for me and I'm going to take care of myself and... I'm going to prepare myself and my family and, you know, everybody else can take care of themselves. We, we have chosen to go the opposite direction. We have chosen to say, and our community has chosen to say, let's work together. It's more effective to work together. We're better as a community than we are individually. And I just think it's a philosophy I, because we, we do have people in the region that I would call preppers and that's, you know, that's fine, but we, prefer to work as a community as opposed to individually. And we think we're stronger that way. From your experience of the COVID-19 pandemic so far, are you more optimistic or less optimistic as far as your community's ability to deal with this pandemic and with future disasters? Well, I would say after the tornado that went through Manzanita, my confidence in our ability to work together exponentially increased. That was 2016. 
the pandemic has brought out some kind of some different emotion and um and it's it's been harder to get our arms around in terms of how the community works together we've worked really well as a as a neighborhood but there are all kinds of external influences over which we have no control that make it even more challenging people uh coming into the community from outside of the area carrying covid and not wearing a mask or staying 6 feet apart the fact that we have minimal hospital beds available and the thought that if there is something that spreads we don't have the resources to take care of people if something like that happens so and it's interesting as i listen to national television i hear that from a lot of communities communities that are small and isolated they really it's not that they don't want people to come back it's that they want people to come back slowly and recognize that they're coming into a community that has really been careful about taking care of themselves and has really worked with wearing masks and staying 6 feet apart and to honor those responsibilities in the community that they visit back in new york brita lockting lives much closer to the epicenter of the pandemic I asked her whether visiting her family and reporting on the efforts in Cape Mears and Manzanita has changed the way she thinks about preparing for disasters. So I sort of mentioned this in the piece, but my just personality and attitude towards natural disaster is like, oh, I'll just deal with it when it comes. Like I don't prepare at all. Um, in fact, I actually really dislike having excess of anything. So like I won't go buy anything until I've already run out of it. toilet paper, toothpaste, or like anything like that. But yeah, when I went to go visit Pete and Ellen, I would say initially I still was not swayed. I was still kind of like this seems a little over the top and like I'm not going to go home and buy 6 months worth of food. And it really wasn't until the pandemic hit and like we really were confined to our homes that I realized, oh, they were actually sort of onto something this whole time. I feel like I've actually become like a very paranoid person which I was not before. You know, when I go get packages, I wear latex gloves and I'll go out on walks and when I come home, I change my clothes. I no longer wear the same clothes in my apartment than I was outside. I disinfect my phone every time I come back inside. Now I have food for weeks, like maybe a month worth of food. I don't know if I could go back now to a point where I only have food for like that one meal that I'm cooking. I think that I would be uncomfortable with that at this point and that I would always want food in my fridge. What do you feel like you've learned from reporting this whole story about how ready American communities are to weather any kind of disaster, whether it be an earthquake, a wildfire, a pandemic? Did you come away from your reporting feeling more hopeful about the ability of communities to help themselves or do you think that we're still just as vulnerable and just as naive about most threats as we were before? I think that we're probably still just as naive and unprepared. I sort of think that when the pandemic ends, I do think that there'll be some lasting effects and behavioral changes, but I think that a lot of how we were living before will come back. I think that will sort of revert back to our old ways. I just don't know if anyone is really going to take the effort on like Linda has. What you're saying in a way is there just aren't enough Linda Kozlowskis out there. Yeah, I think it's a big undertaking to do what Linda has done. And I think too because 
it's not just her that will be affected by the disaster. It's really the entire coast. But if you're living in an area that is maybe not prone to disaster, it's sort of hard to mentally prepare for that. Like maybe if you're living in, you know, a hurricane zone, yeah, you might be more prepared, but much of America isn't necessarily living in these disaster-prone areas. And because pandemics still seem, I think, very rare or far off for a lot of people, I don't know how much it'll sink in. It's funny. I, I kind of thought you would offer a more optimistic take. I thought you would say something <laughs> like, um, this pandemic has been so traumatic and will leave such deep scars that we'll be much better disaster preppers afterwards, that you can't help but come away from an event like this feeling like you've learned something important about the chaos and the fragility of life, right? You know, you do want to learn from what happened and you do learn from what happened, but at the same time, you still want some like normalcy and to go back to how it was before. So I don't know. I think there is a little bit of both. Like I was saying, I'm going to have my fridge stocked from now on. So there are things like that. But I don't know. It'll be interesting in terms of like a bigger mentality of whether America does get more prepared. Yeah. Well, it'll take a while for that to show itself. Britta, thank you so much for talking with me. This has been really fun and interesting. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this edition of Deep Tech. This is a podcast we're making exclusively for subscribers of MIT Technology Review to help bring alive the ideas our reporters and editors are thinking and writing about. But we're making this episode free to everyone, along with much of the rest of our coronavirus coverage. Before we go, I want to let you know about a new virtual conference coming up June 8th through 10th. It's called MTech Next 2020, and it's a co-production of MIT Technology Review and Harvard Business Review. We'll cover topics like business agility in this time of unprecedented change, how to make businesses' digital operations more resilient, advances driven by new technology like machine learning and 5G, and how to leverage these emerging technologies to work better and smarter. We'll be joined by guest speakers such as Eric Yuan, the CEO of Zoom, Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack, and Amy Webb, the founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute. Find out more and register for your spot at mtechnext.com. That's emtechnext.com. Deep Tech is written and produced by me and edited by Jennifer Strong and Michael Riley. Our theme music is by Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. I'm Wade Rausch. Thanks for listening. And we hope to see you back here soon for our next episode.